today we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 once again. I wanted to start, though, with a, a famous 19th century English author named Lewis Carroll, of course, brought to the world Alice, uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, also wrote a book called Looking Through, uh, or Through the Looking Glass, with Alice as well. Uh, in that second book, Through the Looking Glass, uh, Lewis Carroll presents this character, uh, a strange character, a little bizarre, uh, some of the things about her, but she is, she is the White Queen. And the White Queen, and through the looking glass, has this very unique ability to, to see the past, the present, and the future all at the same time and to make adjustments according to what she knows is going to happen. Like, for instance, she and Alice are having this conversation, and she begins to bandage up one of her fingers, an uninjured finger, but she knows that she's about to get a pinprick in that finger, so she's just bandaging it preventatively, and sure enough, she gets a pinprick, but it's already been bandaged. But anyway, she's able to, to kind of make course corrections right now based on some things that she knows are going to happen. They have this conversation. She tells Alice... That's the effect of living backwards. Kind of makes one giddy, she says. Living backwards, Alice repeated in great astonishment. I've never heard of such a thing. But the queen replied, there's one great advantage in it, that one's memory works both ways. I'm sure mine only works one way, Alice remarked. I can't remember things before they happen. Hmm. It's a poor sort of memory that works only backwards, the queen remarked. Now, for many, the only certainties our life are things that have already happened. There aren't certainties about what is to come. I mean, you can save money and invest as much as you want, but there's not a certainty that those investments are going to turn out, that you're going to have enough to retire. You hope you do. Um, you can... Watch your diet. You can exercise, but there's no certainty that you're going to live to a certain age or that you're not going to get sick. So for many, the only certainties are those things that have already happened. But with Christians, we have a different point of view. We are oriented, we are anchored by certainties about the past, uh, that Jesus died for us, was buried for us, was raised for us, the certainty of the gospel... And we have heaven-oriented certainties about the future, about what is to come. And we're tied into both of those. So disciples of Christ have this, have this certainty about the past and the future. A heavenward orientation is pulling us forward. Uh, and when life doesn't make sense, and you all know this, it doesn't always make sense when there are setbacks, when there are struggles right now, or when sometimes you just feel a little bit lost, Paul reminds us that we can tie on to some things that we know will be true. He tells the Colossians in the first three verses of chapter 3, since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on what? On the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. 
So set your sights on the realities of heaven and live backwards from that. Live from that in your day-to-day life here. You see, our lives are informed by, inspired by, and injected with this hope of heaven, with this orientation that we have that the future has already been decided in Jesus Christ. And the word for this in the Bible is one you've heard many times. It is the word faith. Um, This world, faith tells us, this world of sin and death and despair, this world is not the ultimate reality. This world is a placeholder. This world is, in some senses, a poser, a pretender. And we wait for the real world that is to come in Jesus Christ. Now, this affects a lot of things about the way we believers live. Um, And we're going to focus on, we did last week, we're going to focus on today, relationships. Okay, How we interact with other people. Last week, Paul talked to us about forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. He talked to us about not holding on to grievances, and he told us, above all else, we are to bind all the virtues that we have as believers in love. Like, love centers us in how we relate to other people. Now, this week, Paul is going to go into a bit more detail. He's going to zoom in a little bit more on what it looks like Uh, to live backwards when it comes to relationships with other people. So let's pick it up in chapter 3, verse 18. Paul writes this, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting for those who belong to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Children, always obey your parents, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not aggravate your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. Serve them sincerely because because of your reverent fear of the Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord and not for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward and that the master you are serving is Christ. But if you do what is wrong, you will be paid back for the wrong you have done, for God has no favorites. Now, this is one of a few texts in the Bible that is really popular these days for those who want to jump on the Bible. For those who want to say, I can't believe that you follow the Bible. Look at how anachronistic, how out of touch this text is with reality. I mean, this is a, this is a Bible passage that, that allows people to disrespect women. This is a Bible passage that, that praises slavery. Well, it, it does neither of those things, okay? Um, now, what we have to do with a text like this before we unpack what it is saying is kind of unpack what it is not saying, and it is certainly not an endorsement of slavery, for example. I mean, Paul is writing to first century folks, and about a third of people in the Roman world lived as slaves. About a third of the folks in the Roman world were slaves, and the Scriptures never applaud slave ownership. In fact, they limit it, they restrict it. In the Old Testament, Hebrews were required to to release their slaves, to give them their freedom, right? Um, That was a requirement after a certain amount of time. And in Colossians, 
the scriptures, this isn't speaking to a Hebrew audience. These are Gentiles. Uh, these are a new sort of, of members of God's family, the Gentile people. And many of them were either slave owners or were themselves slaves. And so it's talking about how do you do that? How do you live in that? It is not an endorsement of slavery. Not an endorsement for slavery any more than your car owner's manual endorses flat tires. It may tell you how to fix a flat tire. It may tell you where the spare is and where the tools you're going to need are, but that doesn't mean that the Ford Motor Company wants you to have a flat tire or wishes that on you. It's just saying, if that's your situation, here's what you need to do. And Paul is saying, if this is your situation, if you are a follower of Christ and you are a bondservant of someone, this is how you need to conduct yourself. And it certainly isn't any kind of validation for this evil institution. Now, he tells them in verse 23, work willingly. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than working for people. That's the advice. More broadly, and I think aptly enough this Labor Day weekend, more broadly it is speaking to all of us who work for a living and talking about work in terms of our discipleship. Um, whether your work is meaningful or monotonous, whether your boss is a slave driver or a superhero, those questions are secondary. What is primarily important to me as a disciple of Christ is living backward from the reality that Jesus reigns in my life. That I follow Christ and that He pays attention to what I do, not just when I'm sitting on a pew at church, but He pays attention to me during my work week. Now, slaves in the ancient world certainly had it better, typically, than slaves did, and we think of more modern times, but their life was not ideal. I mean, if anyone in the ancient world would have had reason to be bitter about their job, uh, to feel that they had not been dealt a fair hand by life, it would have been a slave. Yeah? And Paul doesn't come along. It's interesting. He doesn't come along and say, take up arms and rebel against your masters. He doesn't say that. And Paul doesn't say, on the other hand, he doesn't say, you're right, it stinks that this is your situation, that you're a slave. So just do the minimum, mail it in, mark time, save your best energy for church work or for ministry. Okay, he doesn't say that. What he says is, do your best. Because you're working for a bigger and better master. All right? That's what he says. He says in verse 24, know this, a reward is coming your way. Jesus is going to reward you. And then he says, know this, Jesus is paying attention to your work, and that's your real boss, so work for the Lord. So your work has worth. Um, whether you are an accountant and you're balancing the books, whether you are flipping burgers, whether you are working the cash register at the grocery store, whether you are painting a house, um, you are being watched by your Lord and Savior. He takes pleasure in watching us create. He works he takes pleasure in watching us partner with other people on jobs. He takes pleasure in watching us serve customers. He takes pleasure in watching us produce. And as long as you're not breaking any laws, as long as you're not doing anything immoral, your work is an offering to the Lord Jesus. I love that. 
I love that. Um, when we were back in Brazil in Rio a few weeks ago, had a chance to catch up with some old friends, a husband and wife that worked with us. Actually, they were in full-time church work, paid ministry for a number of years, and now they've transitioned into secular work, and, and they started putting uh, cabinetry in homes, real high-end, fancy-looking stuff, and, and decking out you know, kitchens and bathrooms and, and bedrooms and, and decorating all apartments with all kinds of cabinetry, and they started doing very well. And so they opened one store and then a second store. And actually, when we were there, we got to go to the inauguration of their sixth store. So they're doing very well. And it was interesting talking with them about how it's not like they stepped away from serving the Lord by moving into secular work. No, they talked about the theological orientation for what they do. Like, they asked questions about what impact does, does our work have on the environment? How can we source the materials that we use in ways that are sustainable? Uh, they have conversations and, and very thoughtfully uh, reached reach conclusions about how they're going to train their employees, their sales team, to be uh, honest with customers and to treat customers with uncommon courtesy. Um, they talk about how they are to, how they're going to use the profits of the business in ways that bless Christ and, 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 and edify His kingdom. And so they have a very theological orientation about their cabinet-making business. Um, so their commitment to Christ really influences all parts of their business. Now, we all work. You may not get a paycheck right now, but we wake up in the morning and we have things that we need to get done. And Paul wants us to understand that that's not a separate thing from discipleship, okay? That's part of your walk with the Lord, okay? Um, now we get to marriage. So how does living backwards from the realities of heaven, how does that affect our marriages? He says, wives, submit to your husbands. He says, husbands, love your wives and don't ever treat them harshly. And, and you may be thinking, wait a second, that's, that's scandalous. You know, submit to your husbands, right? Um, how, could, how could Paul say that? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, he's going to say to both husbands and wives, submit to each other, which begs the question, but this is Colossians. Gordon, talk about this. Why does he just tell wives you need to submit to your husbands? Well, we are reading the letter to the Colossians. We're reading someone else's mail. So perhaps there were circumstances here. Right? Perhaps there were marriages in distress in this church in Colossae where wives were domineering, perhaps domineering their husbands, and this was something that Paul needed to address. But is it scandalous to talk about a spouse submitting to another? Not at all. Not at all. In fact, uh, surrendering our rights, making concessions to the other, looking out for my spouse's interest above my own interest, that doesn't destroy a marriage that builds a lifelong love. That's what that does. Now, tragically, in our culture, we've kind of flipped things around these days where even marriage is really about me. Marriage has become sort of a vehicle for personal fulfillment. It is about getting my needs met and my dreams realized. But you go back to even, even think about the vows 
and traditional wedding ceremonies and how they are not oriented on me getting my needs met and my personal fulfillment. Even the vows, um, they're about commitment. They're about surrender. For richer or poorer, I'm with you. In sickness and health, I'm going to stand by your side and then till death do us part. Trevin Wax wrote this. He said, that last line has always stuck with me. Until death do us part. I don't think many couples sense the weight of that last line. What you are saying is, one of us will stand at the grave of the other. In other words, I'm with you until your last breath. Or you're with me until mine, whichever comes first. And that's not the kind of vow you make in a heated moment of romantic passion. It is the kind of vow that fuels romantic love, but the commitment is the foundation. So there's this cultural narrative that marriage is about me, and ultimately it it plays out in ways like, Like, true love shouldn't be hard. True love should come naturally. Really? Huh. I mean, would you expect a prospective heart surgeon to say something like, Boy, I thought it would be easy to do bypass surgeries. Who knew you had to be trained for this? Or would you, would you expect a, an athlete that's, that wants to be a, a, a really good football player to say, wow, I didn't know this was going to hurt? I mean, consider how people think about weddings these days. Um, it is the climax of that relationship. It is the mountaintop. It is, it is the big ending to almost every rom-com ever. The big wedding at the end. Wow, look at that couple. They made it. They're a success. They got through all those misunderstandings and crazy circumstances. There they are at the altar trading vows. And wow, what a great finale. I shocked my wife last night. I was just Googling stuff on my phone. We were watching TV and... And I looked, I was just, I wonder how much the average wedding costs these days in the U.S. And so I found this statistic on the internet. It said, and this was from 2016, so maybe it's a little more nowadays. Maybe it's a little more, less, I don't know. But the stat is this. The average wedding in the U.S.A. in 2016 cost $35,329. My wife's like, (gasps) No way. And I'm like, well, you know, you start adding all that up. The venue and the food and the DJ and maybe a live band or whatever. I mean, it gets expensive. A lot of money. The dress. All that stuff. But here's the thing. Living backward flips the script. I mean, we realize the wedding is is not the end. It's not the goal line. It's the beginning. It's the starting point, and the journey is going to be worth it as long as Jesus is in the middle, as long as I'm living backward from the reality that Christ reigns. Now, children. Paul talks to children kind of interestingly, gives them the exact same word that he gives to slaves. He says, obey. He says, you need to obey 
your parents. It pleases the Lord when children are respectful to their parents, when they are obedient to their parents. So part of discipleship, if you are a child, is to respect and to honor those parents, obey those parents. And, and I love this. For dads, he throws in, do not aggravate your kids. Or the NIV says, do not embitter your kids. And I think that just uh, should remind us dads, we've got a very important leadership role there with our kids. We are not to discourage them. That means we are to encourage them. We're to teach them and train them and be cheerleaders for them. And never, ever, when we have to discipline them and we all have to discipline from time to time, never, ever crush that spirit in that child. We're going to have to call it out. We're going to have to get their attention. We're going to need to make corrections in some behavior sometimes. But never crush the spirit. Never embitter that child. And I think that's why I said this at first service. I'll say it again. I think that's why anyone who has parented more than one child knows you don't parent two children in the exact same way. They're different people, and you find what works for this one and what works for this one. Probably a couple more sermons that could be preached there, but we'll move on. Um, Anyway, one child is going to be disciplined in one way, and the other is going to be disciplined in another way. But what I want to do as we finish up here is really kind of zero in on what does it look like then to live backwards, to live from the reality of heaven. And we're going to talk about kind of this refrain. It means that the way I live is tied to someone out of this world. That I'm not just tied to what's going on in the world. I realize there is a bigger reality at play out of this world. Number one, I have an out-of-this-world master. What we're talking about here is just how our relationships are shaped by Christ. And that whole passage, whether he's talking to wives or he's talking to husbands or he's talking to kids or he's talking to slaves, he brings Jesus into all of these human relationships, home relationships, work relationships. Jesus is in the middle. The way I treat people, it's no longer just a reaction to how they treated me. How I treat people, it's no longer just thinking, hmm, how can I get what I want out of this relationship? Pull these right levers, and then I'm going to get what I want. No. How I treat people is based on how Jesus loves me. How Jesus forgave and forgives me how Jesus sees the best in me, how Jesus tries to bring out the best in me, all of that shapes how I treat other people. And in life, kind of moving on to the second thing here, in life, at work, um, whenever things don't go my way, when I don't feel like I'm being treated fairly, the second thing here, I believe in an out-of-this-world justice. It's not up to me to even the score because ultimately, this is the promise in this passage, God will sort that stuff out. That doesn't mean I'm not interested in justice. That doesn't mean that Christians are not fighters for justice in this world. It just means we realize the balance sheet doesn't have to all be made right in this world. God is going to make it right. The NIV translation here of chapter 20, uh, verse 25, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong. There is no favoritism. Trust God with that. 
And finally, I want you to kind of imagine, what would this look like to, to live with this confidence, to, to live with this conviction that you are in line for the greatest inheritance in the history of, of the world? Paul says, that's your reward. That is what is waiting on you. You can live backwards from the knowledge of this amazing inheritance in Christ Jesus. So I have an out-of-this-world future. I can overcome in the here and now because a great reward, a great inheritance is waiting for me. I get to live backward from that and live that out in my daily existence now. He says in verse 24, Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. Keep that in mind. Know that that's coming. The white queen made sense of things by living backwards. Like, think about this. Like, if you knew for a fact, okay, this particular stock on the New York Stock Exchange, it's going to quadruple in value in the next three or four years. What would you do? If you knew for a fact that was going to happen, wouldn't you, like, sell everything? Wouldn't you liquidate everything and invest in that stock? Wouldn't you put all your marbles in that one? Well, you'd live backwards from that certainty, right? And as disciples, we know... Our Lord sits on the throne. We know we have this inheritance coming. We know that He's going to take care of everything. And that certainty of this coming kingdom shapes how we live here and now. Thy kingdom come. In my marriage, in my workplace, in my neighborhood, thy kingdom come. The author who shared with the world that character, Alice. Um, he was a professor of mathematics, Charles Dogston, pen name Lewis Carroll, professor of mathematics at Oxford University, also a deacon in his church, a believer. And I wanted to share with you some of his words about, as believers, what it looks like to live backwards from the reality that Christ reigns. He wrote this, I believe that when you and I come to lie down, for the last time. If only we can keep firm hold of the great truths that Christ taught us. Our own utter worthlessness and His infinite worth. And that He has brought us back to our one Father. And He has made us His brethren and so brethren to one another. We shall have all we need to guide us through the shadows. I love that line. We shall have all we need to guide us through the shadows. Most assuredly, I accept to the full that Christ died to save us, that we have no other way of salvation open to us but through His death, and that it is by faith in Him and through no merit of ours that we are reconciled to God. And most assuredly, I can cordially say, I owe all to him who loved me and died on the cross of Calvary. Maybe this morning you've got some present circumstances that are causing you some 
some stress, or some sorrow. And you need to work backwards from the reality of heaven into those circumstances. And we would invite you as we spend a little time here at the end in, in worship just to, to pray with somebody about that. To go before the one you know sits on the throne and bring that to the Lord and then bring peace back from that throne into your life, into your current circumstances. Or maybe this morning, it's crossing that line of faith. It's saying yes to Jesus. It's surrendering your life to the King of the universe and becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. You can be baptized in his name this morning. You can begin that journey. However you need to respond, do that as we stand together, as we worship together.